Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, just before we dive into this one, I want to give another quick shout out to Real Vision. Go check them out, realvision.com. You can pay $1 to get 30-day access to as much of their content as you like or download the app and use the app and download the audio to use that as a podcast style. It could change your life. It's what you need right now in these very, very strange economic times. Go check them out. And thanks for listening. Let's get into today's show. Hello and welcome to the show. On today's show, we have Robert Breedlove from Parallax Digital. And Robert's just um, straight off the back of releasing a brilliant article on Medium about the number zero, which um, we want to get uh, straight into. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show and um, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Well, um, just to introduce, co-host today is... Um, Samuel, twin brother to Lauren, and he's going to lead off with the uh, the nine year old Bitcoin question. So you're going to come a bit closer to the mic, mate, and ask Robert Robert your question about Bitcoin. Shall I be um, changing my money to Bitcoin, my birthday money to Bitcoin? <laughs> well, uh, you're nine, so I would assume you have a pretty uh, good investment horizon. And I would, uh, I would suggest, yes, I think it would be a good time to start putting away some of that birthday money into a Bitcoin nest egg. I think this is a really good, really good time for that, especially given uh, the most recent $6 trillion worth of U.S. dollar printing here in the U.S. So my answer would be yes. <laughs> How does that sound? Now it's not just Daddy that says it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a good enough answer for you? Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Thanks, Robert. Um, okay. Do you want to uh, yeah. say Bye. goodbye? Bye, Samuel. Thanks. I would love to go into more detail on that answer, but um, I, I'm not sure where. I'm not sure how much you've you've given him already. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, we, you know, we 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 do do it, and any any money that uh, he or any of the kids decide to part with, um, I. I matched that contribution and stack into sets. Ah, that's very kind of you. Well, you know, that's kind of, um, yeah, I, you know, there's got to be a, the dangled carrot for them to, to actually part with their hard-earned birthday money, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, let's get into this um, article, Robert, because, um, yeah, the number zero and Bitcoin. And I, I think it's probably on everybody's mind, you know, like, uh, what the hell has been going on up in that dome of yours? Because <laughs> this piece, this piece was crazy. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I guess I, there's a bit of a, a frustration, I think, in general, in the Bitcoin community. And that's most people outside of it seem to think that Bitcoin is just one of thousands, you know, and it's, it's actually rather difficult to explain that, to explain why Bitcoin is different. If it's just code that can be copied, it's open source technology that can be emulated by anyone. You know, you and I can go and launch 
Daniel Coin in 15 minutes on the Ethereum blockchain. It's like, what makes Bitcoin different? And basically, I guess through the struggle of trying to find the apt analogy for something that the, the actual order of events of its emergence in, uh, influence its outcome in the world. Um, I had to dig really deep to find something that, that had emerged uh, similar to that and landed on you know something that I didn't realize was as big of a deal as it is until getting into it um, is the number zero. You know, we've had mathematics for a long time, at least four or 5,000 years um, used kind of commercially, but the number zero didn't really make its appearance until it looks like the seventh century in Indian and Cambodian cultures and was a total game changer for a lot of reasons um, that I'm sure we'll explore today. And what kind of resources did you, um, did you use to, to get down this rabbit hole? And how, how long did it take? Because it's crazy. Like the, 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 the depth that you go into to flesh this out was, I mean, I've read it twice. And each time I read it, I, I get like, what, where, uh, how? Well, <laughs> I will, so there's a sources link on the bottom. There's two books. There's one called Finding Zero, um, which is a mathematician's description. He actually found the first inscription of the number zero on a stone epitaph in Cambodia, which I think was dated back to the seventh century BC. So it's this whole story of how he found that. And there's another book called uh, Zero, the Biography of a Dangerous Idea that goes into a lot of the um, the development of zero and how it, how it uh, impacted the church, um, how it introduced the concept of the void and infinity to a church that was premised on an Aristotelian philosophy of no infinity and no void. So zero was actually, interestingly, a very heretical concept to the power of the church over time. And so uh, a lot of this is, I would say, is a distillation of those books. And there's still some also some other sources at the end. But I was really trying to compress the idea of an unstoppable idea, right? Like it's more than just the invention. People get so focused on the technology itself. Like this is the code. This is the, the mechanism by which we used to operate it. But it's the idea behind it, which is something bigger than the, just the tech itself. And um, I think it's pretty aptly embodied in, in zero. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll, we'll get definitely into, um, into the article. But I wanted to ask you um, about um, two things, which I think really need explaining to, to help people and to set this up even in a better way. And uh, that is of um, like this word we can't agree to pronounce correctly, uh, seniorage <laughs> or seniorage. Or, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, could you explain uh, what that is exactly? Because um, I don't think, well, we're just not taught about it, right? Right. Yeah, this word, I don't think anyone learns this word until they go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, unless they're, you know, uh, monetary historians or something. But the word, as I pronounce it in my poor American dialect, is seniorage. Um, it does look like it has more of a French background, seniorage or something. But it essentially is the profiteering from money production. So when you hold a monopoly over money, and you can exclude all competitors from the marketplace. You can issue 
a currency and sell it at its face value. So I can print a dollar today and sell it at a dollar. If my marginal cost of production of that dollar, which if it's not you know redeemable for gold or anything else, uh, is much lower, say it's five cents, then in theory, you could net the difference on that. The 95 cents would be profit to the, the currency issuer. Now they don't typically, they don't net the, that full amount. They usually net about 5%, but it is the mechanism by which central banks profit directly from the production of money. They're literally just adding numbers to a database today and they profit from it directly. Um, and it is, it's the mechanism by which they privatize these gains from money production that society is forced to use as a whole. Um, and then it, it's also the, the flip side of that would be inflation where they're actually socializing losses over time. Right. So the government can run a large deficit and then to cover their expenditures, they can just print more money and push that cost onto the population over time through the implicit tax of inflation. So they're kind of two, two sides of the same monopolistic coin that central banks wield over humanity. And as you said, answering Samuel's question earlier, in the US, um, six trillion is being printed right now. Yeah. That's, I, I, I don't know like uh, what, what that would mean in seniorage terms. Um, um, so a, a little breakdown on that. Uh, I think these numbers are correct. As I mentioned earlier, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, but so someone can math check me on this. $6 trillion per 100, and that's the US Federal Reserve balance sheet uh, increase as a result of this uh, latest expansionary monetary policy is roughly $6 trillion divided by 130 million US households works out to be about $46,000 per US household, of which it looks like Main Street uh, you know, consumers, citizens will see less than 6,000 of that total. Um, you know, we got a $1,200 check that's supposedly coming out in a few weeks. There's going to be a few other programs here and there. The other 40,000 of the 46,000 per household will be allocated to Wall Street and Washington. Um, so that is, you know, that's it right there. It's, it's, a, it's being labeled as a relief program. But in really, in reality, it's just a massive um, taxation program. Frankly, it's just implicit, and over a longer period of time, fewer people understand it, um, so they're able to get away with it um, much more surreptitiously than they would uh, versus sending you a forty-six thousand dollars tax bill. Wow! And so, for, for those of us that are outside of the U.S., are, are you like literally just going to receive? a check in the mail for like 12 to 1300 bucks every household my understanding is if the irs has your bank account information they'll just ach or wire it to you if you don't there will be a longer wait and you will receive a physical check uh, and all this is being hashed out in real time so i'm not sure where it actually landed but that was the latest that i heard man are you gonna stack some sets with that uh <laughs> Sure. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I stack lots of stats as it is, but yeah, that will probably end up in the, the stat sacking budget. And then, you know, for the U.S., it's actually worse for everyone else in the world because in these liquidity crises, the Fed is effectively the central bank of the world. Um, and the original construction of that, you know, at the Bretton Woods Conference was the dollar would be pegged to gold. 
all international currencies would be pegged to the dollar. So effectively, the world would be on a gold standard. And then in the 1971 Nixon shock, which I'm sure you've talked about a million times, he revoked the redeemability for gold, putting the whole world on a fiat standard. Um, so now, like we in this March 12th Black Thursday, as some people are now calling it, we had this flight to safety. There's, it drove a huge demand for U.S. dollars. So typically in the short run, when these crises shake out, a way to think about this is money is like an insurance policy on the future. So as uncertainty increases in the future, the value that that insurance policy offers increases. Like if you're going into uncertain economic times, you don't know what's going to happen. You want to maximize your optionality. And cash is an instrument of pure optionality. It allows you to buy anything in the marketplace. So when you're going into uncertain times, you want as much cash, as, as large of a cash position as possible. And when you see these crises break down, you see these sudden rushes into cash. Everyone wants to hold maximum options across time. And for the U.S., being the central bank of the world, that is the exorbitant privilege that we have. Everyone tries to rush into U.S. dollars worldwide. Um, a lot of oil contracts are denominated in, in U.S. dollars uh, a lot of foreign exchange and foreign debt is handled and facilitated through U.S. dollars. Um, the U.S. Federal Reserve owns the SWIFT system, which is the backbone of international banking settlement. So I think the pain is going to be even more greatly exacerbated on foreign currencies as a result of this economic crisis. Yeah, for sure, which we've already seen happen. Um, you know, especially um, in the UK, where the um, the sterling has dropped um, in value considerably to the uh, the US dollar. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Uh, well explained. Right. Back to Bitcoin. Back to your um, your your piece here, and um, I wanted to uh, ask you about path dependence because you've got a really good uh, section in there, which I think oh. is. Is going to be. It will help people understand exactly where you're coming from to drive this point home about you know about how Bitcoin became and how the it's an idea that can't be stopped. Yeah, path dependence is critical, and this is. I always give him a shout out. Um, this is from my favorite author, Nassim Taleb. The concept I picked up from him. Uh, I don't know that he originated it, but he certainly um, helped elucidate it for me. And if you haven't read his books, everyone go out, read them all twice. Start with Anti-Fragile. I think that's his best work. They don't need to be read in order. Um, and you can thank me later. They're all really good. So path dependence is essentially the sensitivity of an outcome to the order of events that led to it. And the simple analogy I like to give is if you take a shower and then dry yourself off, you get a much different result versus if you dry yourself off and then shower. So what it means is that the order of events matter for the outcome. And path dependence is especially prevalent in complex systems that have a lot of interconnectivity and high degrees of interdependencies, um, often which have very unforeseeable outcomes. So if you think of like, um, any complex system, like the economy, for instance, there's a lot of policies that have been passed with certain intended uh, consequences or certain intended outcomes that have dramatically different consequences. And 
that's just sort of highlighting our inability to deal with complex systems. Like we are, our intentions are often divorced from outcomes because of the nature of a complex system. We just, we're not, we're not wired to deal with them. Well, we can't comprehend exponents. Um, we don't understand non, non linearities and, um, you know, just it's kind of like the weatherman trying to predict the weather, right? We can't, we still to this day can't predict the weather effectively more than two or three days in advance. Um, and an economy is, you know, just as complex as the weather. So for Bitcoin, it was launched at a time in the world as an original technology. It is, it was launched as a digital non state money it it is issued on a perfectly fixed and diminishing and predictable supply curve so when it was released at the time it was released it was considered a joke by most right it was released strategically into this online group of uh cryptographers that sort of saw its value prop early and adopted it um began running the mining software to create it and allowed the network to kind of bootstrap itself into existence. In that world, Bitcoin sort of had this organic adoption path to where it was gradually able to be adopted by those who understood it first, and then began, those that saw value in it began to exchange it. You know, one of the first exchanges is the infamous 10,000 Bitcoin for two pizza pies. Um, and then at, when it started to be exchanged, that that was really the the miracle event. Then it it gained an actual monetary value in the free market, and from then on, it's just been a it's just been a mathematical function of the diminishing Bitcoin supply curve juxtaposed over an inflating fiat currency supply curve, and as those two curves diverge further and further, that is expressed in the the U.S. dollar price, for instance, uh, of Bitcoin increasing and increasing, and you know, as we just touched on, the six trillion dollar stimulus package, quote unquote, uh, is just the latest kink in that curve upward. And next May, every four years, Bitcoin's inflation rate is reduced by half. We're going into another one of those events in May this year. So I think it's very opportune timing um, over the next 24 to 36 months for Bitcoin in that we should see it outperform um, kind of the broader capital markets given that its value is driven by its own inflation rate adjustments, whereas the broader capital markets are going to be driven um, by the you know central bank um, activity in the marketplace. So I get to round out path dependence. It's like if you tried to launch a new Bitcoin in the world today, it's like the world's already aware of it. So if new Bitcoin were launched with an absolutely fixed mon money supply. It would its chain would be attacked automatically, whether it's in, by any interest, which could be even Bitcoin holders, right? Could be banks who see see the threat that Bitcoin is, and they would attack something like that early on. Could be a nation state that uh, sees the existential threat that Bitcoin poses to their um, monetary monopoly. So all these things um, basically create a world that a new Bitcoin competitor can't really effectively emerge backstopping that it's like if bitcoin had an inflation rate say satoshi had issued this thing with two or three percent inflation um 
terminal, this is terminal inflation rate. Clearly, Bitcoin inflates today, but it, its inflation rate terminates in the mid 22nd century. If he had programmed in some uh, ongoing inflation rate, there would have been an opportunity to insert a superior money that could disrupt it, right? It's almost like free markets were trying to zero in on absolutely scarce money throughout all of history. And gold was kind of the best thing we could get to um, before Bitcoin. So the path-dependent emergence really makes Bitcoin kind of a one-time deal. And its discovery of absolute scarcity for money is a one-time discovery. And reading your piece uh, again last night, um, that just kept smacking me in the face. Like the the magnitude of that, like the fact that we are alive today, seeing this happen, watching this play out, and like, you know, all of human existence, most likely, trying to find that that scarce asset to hang our coat onto. And that, you know, we got to go. But now there's a new boy in town and like <laughs> it blows me away. Yeah. It's, it seems like digital technology. It's really, it's been so disruptive because it is solving so many of these age old problems, you know? Um, and I guess Bitcoin would just be kind of the latest experiment to see how truly disruptive digital technology can be. Cause now we're talking about disrupting gold which is the monetary shelling point for humanity. Um, shelling point being kind of the default strategy in the game of money. Like gold is always, the best strategy has always been to hold the most gold historically because it was the most relatively scarce monetary asset. And if we, can we just, um, can we just, interest, sorry, sorry to interrupt. But yeah. I think if we just like dwell on that for, for one second, because um, for, for people, Bitcoiners and uh, and other people that might be listening to this, they might understand that. But for other people yeah. that have never been exposed to financial markets or have never been um, investors in the stock market or commodity markets, this this concept of gold being sound money could be very distant to them. Um, you know, not fully fully understand like the the real like humanity and the implications behind it. Could you, could you speak to that a little bit more? Absolutely. So money does five things. It, it needs to be divisible, durable, portable, recognizable, and scarce. And so I'll try to go through each one of those. Divisible means it can be subdivided and recombined at various scales. So you can price things and move value um, at different sizes. It needs to be durable, so it persists over time. So like fruit would make good money, for instance. You know, gold lasts for a long time. It doesn't break down. Uh, portability means it can be moved. You can move value across space while using it. Recognizability means you can perceive and quickly verify what it is, right? You can look at a gold coin and say its value or verify what it is. And then scarcity is what keeps money valuable across time. Because if it's not scarce, if it's not reliably scarce, anyone that can pr print the money or produce the money will inevitably do so because they have an incentive to go and produce it and sell it into the market. So for those across those five dimensions, historically, gold 
first of all, monetary metals were the best. They were the best in terms of divisibility, durability, portability, recognizability. Of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce. So that's why gold became money on the free market. Of all the countless buy and sell decisions of a faceless multitude across history, people decided, the free market decided that gold was money. Um, gold, however, had a few shortcomings. You know, it's got a very high value to weight ratio, and it's uh, which makes it sort of impractical for day-to-day -day use. Hard to buy coffee with gold coins, for instance. And then it's also uh, very expensive to safeguard and store gold. So for these reasons, um, people use, there was a business basically built around warehousing gold, and then they would issue uh, IOUs or warehouse receipts for the gold. So I, gold warehouse operator, would give you, Daniel, you've got 10 ounces of gold on stock with me. I'll give you tickets that say you have 10 ounces of gold. And those paper tickets basically became tradable as money. So they were representative of the gold being held in vaults. Well, over time, due to the physicality of gold, this inevitably became a target for expropriation by bankers and governments. And it became a political tool, frankly. And that's what became, those warehouse receipts are what became national currencies and national currencies when it broke the redeemability of gold are what became fiat currencies. So in a game theory sense, a game is just any situation where there can be winners or losers. And a strategy is just a process for making decisions. So the shelling point is just the default strategy in, in, in games where players cannot fully trust one another. So across those five dimensions of money, that's why gold became money, because it was the best facilitator for trade in a trust-minimized manner, in a way that people had to trust one another the least, but still be able to um, facilitate trade between themselves. That's all founded in, in those characteristics of gold as money. And looking at Bitcoin across those five dimensions, Bitcoin's just pure information, right? I'm going to read this passage. Digitization is advantageous across all five traits of money. Since Bitcoin is just information relative to other monetary technologies, we can say its divisibility is supreme as information can be infinitely subdivided and recombined at near zero cost, like numbers. Its durability is supreme as information does not decompose. Books can outlast empires. Its portability is supreme, as information can move at the speed of light, thanks to telecommunications. And its recognizability is supreme, as information is the most objectively discernible substance in the universe, like the written word. Finally, and most critically, since Bitcoin algorithmically and thermodynamically enforces an absolutely scarce money supply, we can say that its scarcity is infinite, as scarce as time, the substance money is intended to tokenize in the first place. Taken in combination, these traits make absolutely scarce digital money seemingly indomitable in the marketplace. So whereas gold was the default strategy in money historically because of its relative scarcity and value prop across these five traits, Bitcoin is the new shelling point of money because of its superiority across these five traits and its absolute scarcity. And again, absolute scarcity 
can't be disrupted because it is zero. It's a zero terminal inflation rate for money, which is what the free market's been trying to zero in on since the beginning of time. And here we are. And here we are watching it play out and you writing so eloquently about it. Um, and, and Thank you, yeah. sir. <laughs> it, you know, uh, it, it says uh, scarcity is essential to the utility of money and a zero growth terminal money supply represents perfect scarcity, which makes Bitcoin as near a perfect monetary technology as mankind has ever had. Scarcity yes. is a monumental monetary breakthrough. Yes. And it can only be digital. Back to the whole thing, like how disruptive digital technology is being. There's no way we could guarantee any physical money to have a fixed supply. Because I think the example I make is if we could flip a switch and force everyone on earth to start mining gold immediately, the supply of gold would soar, right? Every commodity on earth is really just a factor of how much time we allocate towards its production. But with Bitcoin, for the first time in history, we have something that that does not apply to. You could flip all the computer processing in the world right now to mi start mining Bitcoin, and the difficulty adjustment would ensure that it has this ever-receding horizon, that it will just keep producing the same amount of Bitcoin on the same schedule forever until it stops uh, in you know, 100-some-odd years. So absolute scarcity is a, it's a breakthrough. And just to um, touch, I, I don't want to wash over um, some technical terms. Um, digital, um, sorry, you said uh, difficulty adjustment. So if you could just explain, yeah. uh, like a good analogy is if we all went out and started digging up gold out of the ground, you know, yeah. millions of us would. The gold would get deeper. Right. Yeah. right. Holes, would, yeah. holes would get deeper, more people would start mining, more gold would come on the market. Yeah. And obviously that would push down the price of gold because, uh, you know, the supply would uh, go up. But Difficulty adjustment, can you just explain to the listeners um, how Bitcoin tackles this? Yeah, so the analogy I was making there is like it's almost as if you sent everyone out into the fields to mine gold, but the gold ran away from you. The harder you chased it, the faster it would, the deeper it would go, or the harder it would be to extract. Um, Satoshi basically set the su supply schedule of Bitcoin in mathematical stone when he launched it. You know, it's a 21 million hard cap. Um, it's an it's an asymptotic approach to the 21 million, such that I think today we have again I think the math is right 1800 Bitcoin per day mined. By the year 2100, we are less than one Bitcoin per day being mined. So it diminishes very rapidly. And you know, thus far in its 11 year history, those those having events actually. You know, the theory is you're basically cutting new supply flow to the market in half, which leaving demand neutral, that sends the price uh, running higher every four years. And that's uh, exactly what we've seen thus far. But the difficulty adjustment, I guess that really is the fulcrum of the whole thing. That's what drives absolute scarcity. Otherwise, if there were no difficulty adjustment, people would see, you know, well, first of all, Bitcoin wouldn't be successful, but assuming it was successful in the marketplace, people would just allocate more computing power to it to mine it more quickly. And if the algorithm didn't adapt to become more difficult, then more Bitcoin would start coming out of the earth, so to speak. Um, but because of this difficulty adjustment, it's almost as like we've created a living, breathing money. You know, the harder we pursue it, the harder it becomes to obtain. Yeah, perfect. And another uh, passage that... Um 
I think is really important to drive home. And the subtitle is uh, Fiat Currency Always Falls to Zero. Now, many of us in the privileged democracies that we might live in, like the US or, you know, the UK, for example, where, or or France or Germany, which, um, although they had their currency stolen from them in the mid-90s, that soon crept up on them, and the Deutschmark and the Franc were all of a sudden Euro overnight. Um, but those of us that, you know, might be sitting in, in the UK or US just thinking, ah, no one's coming for our currency, what you're talking about, never going to happen. Fiat currency always falls to zero. Robert, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, again, only gold, even today, we may think the paper in our pocket is money. And that's true in the sense that other people accept it as a medium of exchange, but it's not true in that the free market did not determine it to be money. It's a sim- it's essentially, I like to call fiat currencies one of two things. One, you call it monetary socialism because it's not a free market determined technology. It's a centrally planned market. It's an imposed technology. If you try to go and launch a competitor to it today, the government will come and shut you down. Um And another way to think about this is that it's basically a pyramid scheme that's been constructed on top of gold. So central banks and governments hold gold. They issue these IOUs, uh, these national currencies that were once redeemable in gold. They've since revoked that redeemability. And now it's become a fully debt-based system whereby the banks at the highest tiers in the pyramid profit at the expense of those lower down the pyramid. And those those banks at the lower tiers in the pyramid profit at the expense of consumers who are ultimately at the bottom of the pyramid. So these fiat currencies, they are designed to self-destruct. I mean, they are used to siphon wealth off of a society so long as it will tolerate it before they inevitably explode into hyperinflation. And I uh, I put out a, a tweet the other day I thought was apt to this is Bitcoin is a permanent casting of timeless monetary principles. It's like a bomb shelter for fiat currencies when they inevitably explode in hyperinflation. So that's how I like to think about it. It's this unbreakable, unstoppable free market money that is absolutely scarce. So it's superior across all dimensions of money. And it can't be shut down. So it's this, uh, a lot of people call it a lifeboat or the plan B or an alternative uh, to fiat currency. Because when these things do go south, as they inevitably do, you know, the average fiat currency lifespan, I think, is 27 years. The longest lived and most successful fiat currency is the British pound, 317 years old, 99.5% of its value lost in that time. Um, I think only that and the U.S. dollar are the outliers because we are living under their paradigm, essentially still. Um, But rest assured, these things come unraveled, and they come unraveled as soon as the the society underpinning it um, has basically been milked dry, right? These are tools for wealth extraction. And when the society uh, underneath it um, stops bearing blood that these things 
implode. So historically, people flocked to trustless, the trustlessness of gold. Um, but, you know, for the first time ever, we have this unstoppable, unconfiscatable, uninflatable money called Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Eloquently put. And now we, we, we don't need, like, you know, once, like you say, once society has had enough and has been bled dry, and that's when you see uprisings and, um, you know, like uh, mass movements of the people and whatever else has happened throughout history. You know, I've, I've spoken about this before, Bitcoin being the silent vote. And mm. you, you, we're in a position now where we can actually use their weapon, which is fiat money, mm-hmm. against... Mm-hmm. them just literally by exchanging it into bitcoin that's exactly right it is uh it's a very exciting notion um you know and this if you want to go real deep like even back to the biblical concept of honest weights weight, weights and measures which is something i'm going to write about next i think there's a core biblical concept talks about the honesty of weights and measures and uh if you remember in the bible the one time jesus freaked out it was on the money changers the guys that were tweaking the scales basically they were changing the uh the units of account to you know milk a little profit for themselves basically the the old the og central bankers i guess if you will and this is like these are the guys jesus flipped the table over on and you know, scattered in the marketplace and all that. Central banking is that. It is the institution that manipulates the weights and measures we use worldwide. And I think Bitcoin is a restoration of honest weights and weights and measures in the world. You know, it's a reversion to the free market for money. And anyone that doesn't realize how important money is, like just ask yourself, how many times have you thought about it or talked about it in the past 24 hours? I mean, I don't think there's anyone on earth that can say they haven't thought about it at least once in the past 24 hours. You deal with it day to day, moment to moment. Like the, the nature of the world changes shape to us based on money, right? Right now, this table that I'm, this, my computer is resting on is an accessory to me because we're interacting on this podcast. But if I were to give someone a hundred bucks to run through this window as fast as they could, this table would then become an obstacle to them, right? The, it changes the nature, the way we perceive reality is changed by money. It is the trust fabric through which we all inter, interoperate. And for that to be corrupted, corrupts us, corrupts our perceptions of the world, corrupts our relationships. Um, so I think it is, a, it's a very big deal to see this, you know, parasite removed from money. And how long have you been um, down this rabbit hole, so to speak? Um, I, it's interesting because <laughs> I was like this nerdy kid that always read The Economist growing up. And I remember I stumbled across the creature from Jekyll Island when I was, I guess I was 20, 21. So this is... Maybe 2006. Wait, hang on a second. You just yeah. you just described yourself as a nerdy kid, but you told me before the podcast you were six four and used to be uh, like a, it, it used to compete in international weightlifting. Like, 
yeah, that too. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't seem to go hand in uh, hand. But anyway, go ahead. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah a bit of, maybe yeah, maybe a bit of a paradox, I guess. But um, when I found this book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is essentially about the founding of the Federal Reserve, um, I ended up buying. But my my light bulb moment was this is what's wrong with the world everyone like the central banking is what's wrong with the world in a lot of ways and so i ended up that's a very large book several six seven hundred pages maybe i got an abridged version of that it's maybe a hundred pages deep called dishonest money and it was just an abridged version of that and i gave it to all my family and friends at christmas this is again maybe year 2006 so a few years before bitcoin and a few people that I convinced to read it, they're like, all right, cool. Thanks for sharing that. So what should we do about it? And I was just, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, I don't know. Knowledge is power. Like, here it is. I'm just telling you something I saw. But I had no good answer. I had no good answer. Like, what, what could we do about it? What could be done about it before Bitcoin? And, um, you know, I first heard about, heard about Bitcoin maybe in like 12, but didn't start investing until 14. But even then, I was not aware of how big of a deal it was. I was under the fallacy of it's version one of digital money and version 50 will be the thing that, you know, is a big deal. Um, but it, in 2016 and 17, interestingly enough, it was Ethereum and studying the, the concept of smart contracts, reading some of Zabo's work from the late 90s on smart contracts. That's what really sparked my imagination. I started investing pretty heavily into the space and where my money went, my mind followed. And then over time, I just became more of a Bitcoin rationalist slash maximalist. Um, and yeah, this is, you know, it's the first technology or social institution in the history of mankind that has the potential to separate money and state, which is a really big deal. And what, um, how have you felt yourself change fundamentally over, over the time of being exposed to, <laughs> oh, wait, I've, I've hit the nail on the head with this question, just by the look on your face. Like, <laughs> um, it has certainly amplified my nerdiness quite a bit. Um, I think I heard this on Tim Ferriss once. He said that money is like alcohol. It sort of just amplifies your natural character a little bit. And I feel like there's something else too. Uh, Carl Jung wrote about alchemy and things like this. And I'm paraphrasing, but one of the, one of the observations in alchemy was that those that sought to, to refine the ores into gold, like the longer they looked into the ores to try and refine them, the more they found the study refining themselves. So it's almost as if the study of Bitcoin and asking that question, what is money, which ends up, you know, it just diffuses into everything. It touches everything. You know, the, nat the natural second order questions are what is government? You know, what are politics? What are nations? All these things, they just sort of come up uh, naturally. And yeah, I think Bitcoin is that, you know, it's digital gold and it, you have this alchemical response to it almost. If you, if anyone, I dare anyone to just keep asking themselves that question, what is money? Just keep following that rabbit. 
and see how far it goes. And you'll, this is not just me. I think everyone that's down the rabbit hole describes the change, right? You, you're, you become more family oriented. You become more long-term thinking. You, um, I don't know, you take a broader scope on humanity, I guess, in history overall. And, but it really brings out sort of latent characteristics that you may have, that may be underdeveloped in you, um, prior. So it's been an exciting journey. And I, I have one tattoo. People make fun of me. It's under my right arm. I have a Bitcoin tattoo. And, um, you know, it represents skin in the game for me. I'm very, very philosophically aligned with what it represents and the separation of money and state. Cool, man. Um, I, I, for me, I think it just slowed everything down. You know, like um, I, I could just feel like anxiety over money just um, just slowly, slowly lifting. And like you said, you, you think about it all the time. I used to wake up every morning thinking about money. You know, I'm a father, four kids. Like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, becoming a parent fundamentally changes you. So... You know, once you start following these, ra yeah, like you say, follow that rabbit and, and see where it takes you. Um, yeah, it's an incredible journey, right? Now, I want to read another another part of your your piece here. Um, Only unstoppable ideas can break otherwise immovable institutions. Zero brought the church to its knees, and Bitcoin is bringing the false church of the Fed into the sunlight of its long-awaited judgment day. Pretty strong words. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, Pretty strong words indeed. Yeah, just like uh, crazy. So yeah, I mean, unstoppable ideas, and this is what this is the whole essence of of Bitcoin. Yeah, I there's this dynamic tension in human history between the need to cooperate flexibly at scale and the institutions that we've created to facilitate that sort of usurping our humanity or sovereignty in the process. So it's been this kind of back and forth between, you know, the individual and the state um, or the individual and the church, these different domineering institutions across time. And the separation, you know, the, the power of the church was premised on the Aristotelian philosophy of a finite universe. So that meant they looked at everything as the, the indivisible atomic paradigm. So there were atoms that made up the universe. Below the surface of that atom, there was no more. You could not go below the surface of that atom. Not, not that there was void below it or anything else. It's like there was nothing. You can't go below the surface of the atom. And then, you know, on the flip side, they perceived the whole universe as a macrocosmic atom. That was this sheet of stars, basically, on the outside, pointing inward towards the center of the universe, which was Earth. So we had Earth in the center, the planets and the sun going around the Earth, and this outer sheet of the cosmos going around the earth and the prime the mover of the celestial sphere the outermost sphere was the prime mover that was god so the movement of the, that celestial sphere propagated downward into all the movements 
and the planets and stars and the earth and the motions of man. And that was the explanation for divine will. That's how they explained the existence of God in the world. So it, it was dependent. It was critically dependent on this Pythagorean, Aristotelian, finite view of the universe. That was the power of the church was premised on that. So along comes zero, right? To the Hindu Arabic numeral system, which interestingly was discovered in meditation. Literally, they, you, when you meditate, transcendental meditation, you say breathing in one, breathing out two. You repeat this to debug your brain from chattering. And when you get to this place of thoughtlessness from detachment to time and space, that is the void. And that's where the ancient Indians said they discovered zero. It is an instantiation of the void because in the Pythagorean model, there was no shape and number were the same thing. So you couldn't have a number that was nothing because what is, that's not a shape, right? Even today we say one squared, that means you're taking a line with length of one and you're turning it into a square and calculating its area. That's what squared means or cubed, right? Taking into the third dimension. So shape and number were inextricably linked in the Aristotelian view of the universe. And the ancient Indian view, they looked, they saw zero as the, the substrate, really. And it, so anyways, discovered in meditation and became heretical to the power of the church, which to me was just mind blowing. I'm like, here's this institution dominating humanity, saying, this is the model of the universe, this is how it works. Then this unstoppable idea discovered in meditation comes into the world that dramatically enhances our efficiency of computation, trade. It gives us negative numbers. Uh, it gives us imaginary numbers. It takes us into this, gives us the cornerstone for calculus, which every physical science in the world, every biology, chemistry, physics, you name it, depends on calculus for its functioning in the world. So every miracle of modernity that you see and touch and feel and interact with every day has its roots in zero, which has its roots in meditation. That to me, was just mind blowing. That is crazy. That, I mean, and you're right. Like um, meditation is just sitting there looking for nothing. Just be. <laughs> and do you meditate? <laughs> I do. Did this piece uh, come to you during meditation? That's <laughs> I've I've experienced the void, for sure, and it is powerful, and um, it's very. I, I find it to be creative too. If you go and sit there, and when you come out, you're going to have some interesting new perspectives. Matt, how Almost did you certainly. get there? Like it, you know, uh, just this afternoon. I, I think I'm, you know, I, I think I'm this guru and I've got the headspace app and I go and listen to that for 10 minutes and yeah, meditation done. And it's just something off my list. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's completely not the ethos of meditation. Uh, so, uh, yoga, I actually, I did. So after Olympic weightlifting, I had a little bit of very mild back injury for knocking what I've never had any serious injuries, but during one mild injury, um, my girlfriend at the time was taking a yoga course in college and introduced me to yoga at probably around the same time, actually, age of 21, 22. And I just went down that rabbit hole as well. 
I spent 10 or 12 years doing yoga pretty seriously. And that's just, you know, that's a moving meditation. And through that became introduced to transcendental meditation. Which is what exactly? Sorry, listeners, if we're, we're veering off Bitcoin, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. It's uh, it, The way I do it, at least, is I literally just say, sitting there, eyes closed. You don't have to have your legs crossed. You can sit on the edge of a bed, whatever, and you're just breathing in one, breathing out two. Because, you know, like before meditation, I suffered so much from overthinking. And I think a lot of people in the world do. I really, we, our cultural conception is that we are our mind, but that's just not true. We are a lot of things. You know, we have a heart and a soul and a gut and a body. And there's, all of them have their own intelligence. And I think we're just overrun by our own thoughts sometimes. So for me to be able to tap into that power of just the breath and letting, like, I, I use it to fall asleep every night when the mind's is going, talking, da, 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 like I'll just go to the breath and then you fall asleep. So to find that dial <laughs> to turn down the noise on the thought machine uh, is really nice. And I think, um, you know, meditation is a great tool for that. So it's just literally counting one, two, one, two, each time you breathe. Bre- breathing in one, breathing out two. You can repeat that or you can count to 10 go back down you can count to 10 and start over you can count to 100 whatever works for you the 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 idea is to defray the thought process so the thoughts inevitably come up but you're just supposed to observe them and let them pass and then just come back to the breath come back to the breath so the repetition of meditation is the return to the breath so just like you're ripping curls at the gym (laughs) you're just coming back to the breath and meditation Right. All right. Cool, man. Well, is there any, anything else in this piece that you think that you would like to um, flesh out a little bit more that you can think of? Because I know what it's like, you know, you get a piece of writing out there and then it's like, you know, did I get myself on the page the exact way I wanted to? Or is there a little bit more that I wanted to say about that? Um, I guess one thing that a lot of my intent is to try and broadcast this to a wider audience right the importance of everything we've talked about today and i guess you know mathematically it's to me it makes pretty clear sense that if you have a money supply there's literally a video i think in this paper of the guy at the fed saying they have infinite cash yeah yeah you did put that link in the guy with the eyes right crazy cash gary like crazy <laughs> crazy eyed xerxes looking guy looks like looks like xerxes from 300 um <laughs> saying they have infinite cash. Okay, just sit down with yourself, pencil and paper, and do one <laughs> divided by infinity. It, if, if you have infinite cash, you have an infinite number of dollars chasing a finite number of assets, resources in the world, stuff. Infinite dollars chasing finite stuff means zero value to cash in the long run. And that's what's happening. Um, They're just printing money to try and re-engage the demand side of the equation that's been broken by the very model that created uh, the breakage, if that makes sense. So I think the common analogy is like the, the arsonist claiming to be the firefighter, right? The central bankers coming in to save the economy, but not saving the economy. They're driving the very problem they're claiming to be resolving. 
And it is the problem of monetary socialism in an otherwise free market capitalist society that is causing so many of these pains and problems in our lives and the economy and everything else worldwide today. So it's great. Like in America, there's this free market capitalist mentality, right? People like pride yourself on, oh yeah, we're free market capitalists. The market decides, you know, but somehow, and I don't know how they perpetrated this. No one understands that the market for money is completely socialist. Like it is totally centrally planned. There is no, no innovation is allowed. No competition is allowed. It is a siloed fortress that's used to basically extract wealth from people. And it's like, why in an otherwise a culture that prides itself on being free market capitalist, how do we tolerate a socialistic structure like central banking and the market for money? How do we tolerate it? I, I think it's just we've had the wool pulled over our eyes. And um, yeah, in my work, I really attempt to pull it back. I completely agree with you. And, you know, I get into conversations with um, ex-colleagues a lot um, about this. And, you know, people, they look at the stock market, for example, and they think, um, you know, it's just like a free market. It's, um, you know, it gives me the opportunity to invest and to make money. And when I try and tell them, like, you you know, (laughs) you're sitting at a rigged table. They're very, very defensive over that. Very, very quickly and can get very emotional about it. Yeah, there's something very deeply rooted between kind of your nationality, your currency, your religion, all these things, right? They have sort of a religious um, structure to them, if you will, right? It's like a shared belief system, if you will. Um, so the discussions can get very heated very quickly, but I think... I was thinking about this a bit earlier. It seems like maybe fiat or national currencies had a place in a world that was not globalized, right? Where you're actually trying, every gang in the land is trying to weaponize themselves against the other gangs and take territory and all that. But if we're going to move into this future where we're interoperating as one family on one planet, which clearly we're like pushing the seams on all of that right it's like it's it's abundantly clear by this point in history that we cannot operate in isolation what we do in north america affects south america and asia like we're all on one little tiny pale blue dot as carl sagan would say so if we're going to make that leap we have to operate on global standards right And, and this isn't some type of revolutionary concept right like the kilogram, the meter, the mile, right? All these units of measurement that we can all communicate through. That's what math is. Math is basically just the ultimate one of those. It's the universal language. And no one can really violate uh, what those constants represent. So I think Bitcoin just gets us to the next evolutionary stage of society, whatever that is. Um, and I think it's clearly better than having, uh, you know, quote unquote, expansionary monetary policy, plundering commonwealth after commonwealth to bail out failed institution after failed institution. We're just 
we're we're acting countervailing to evolutionary forces. If an institution is failing, then it needs to fail. And then all of its capital needs to be assimilated back into the economy and employed usefully. And we need to learn from the reasons why it failed so we all don't repeat them. To bail out that institution and keep it alive and keep it on life support is just hurting our collective evolutionary potential. Which is exactly what's happening right now, especially in the States when we see bailouts out, uh, you know, of companies like Boeing, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it just to mention one, I mean, how many companies will be bailed out, you know, once this thing plays out over the next six, six months or so? It's hard to say. And it's, you know, there is short-term pain. It's inevitable. We've had 100 years of plus of monetary socialism. There will be a short-term painful thing. But the best, I think Hayek said this, the best thing we could do is just let all these functions reset to their free market value and start anew. It's almost like you have to have this cleansing forest fire and um, to just refresh the ecosystem. Um, I guess one of the things that... It sound, like a lot of this sounds like we're coming from a very heavy moral perspective. Like, you know, central banking's bad, this is good, but it's not just that. It's not just moral. Um, we're not like freedom fighters out here. I think we're also very pragmatic in that these systems, when I, when I say centrally planned, unfree markets, uh, socialistic structures, they fail over time. Because they're inefficient. They're inefficient with resources. And, and here's why. Because a free market, you have everyone competing based on their own self-interest, sort of hashing out what's best for the collective, right? Like if I can figure out a better way to do things, I have an incentive to sell that into the market. And then now everyone has a better way of doing things. And we repeat. That's an iterative process of constantly getting better. In an unfree market or essentially planned market, there's one thing, there's the plan. It's like, this is what is happening. And as that plan moves forward in time, it inevitably becomes less relevant because things change. Can't help that, right? Things change. So as things change and this plan loses relevance, anyone that doesn't adhere to that plan becomes treasonous to the state. And so this thing, like it, it unravels inevitably. And then two, Free markets, you don't need anything. They're regulated by their own individual self-interest. So the individual market participants, by their own self-interest, are regulating their own behavior effectively. In an unfree market, you have to expend all these costs as a tyrant to protect your turf, right? You got to keep other competitors out. You have to enforce compliance with the rules. You're putting out these rules that are not in the self-interest of all your market participants. So there's a cost to enforce those. And then that's why, like, so for instance, Soviet Russia, that's why it breaks down. No one's going to sit there and just bend over for life and say, all right, I'm going to abide by your rules and there's no cost to it. Like you have to, there's a, an energy expenditure necessary to maintain the artificiality of the socialistic structure. Whereas a free market system is a natural organizing principle. It is, it's inherent to what we are. Like, Free markets are just a natural expression of our interdependence as as humans. So it's not just that free markets are better morally than 
central planning or socialism, but it's that they actually outcompete them on a straight energy efficiency basis. And that's why Bitcoin wins. Because Bitcoin is this unstoppable free market money that is orders of magnitude more efficient than the central planning, central banking model. Very well put. Right. Question I always ask on the show. If you could implant your knowledge about Bitcoin into one person who could then go and share that knowledge with their following, you know, a following far wider than you could ever imagine, who would that one person be and why? Mm. Can I have two? <laughs> go ahead. I'll go, I'll, I'll go with Jordan Peterson first. And so people that don't know who Jordan Peterson is, he's a, I would employ you to go check out his YouTube videos, read his books. He's a really prolific guy. Basically a clinical psychologist uh, that's also studied mythology very deeply um, and it, and studied religion and Christianity very deeply. And he just sort of weaves them all together. But a lot of his talks are premised on the value of truth and how important it is to speak the truth and live the truth in your life and the value of individual sovereignty where we have the individual firmly planted as the cornerstone of the state, that there is some intrinsic value to each person, some spark of divinity that makes each one of us valuable um, and worth preserving our individual liberties above all else, right? So the individual sovereignty over institutional sovereignty, we'd say. Those two things are, are the embodiment of what Bitcoin is, right? It's the most honest, transparent, truthful money that's ever existed. And it gives individuals absolute sovereignty over their money. If you hold your keys, you, you have no counterparty risk. You're not, you don't need to trust anyone else. You just need to hold your keys and trust the math. Um, so, and I think, you know, he started accepting Bitcoin on his website. So maybe he's sort of up to speed on it a little bit, but I would really like to see him go down the rabbit hole and hear what he has to say. Uh, and the, the second guy was going to be Joe Rogan, just because he has so much reach, you know, <laughs> yeah, like a bil- a billion podcast downloads a month or something. That would be great. Yeah, he he definitely gets uh, mentioned uh, a lot. Um, there there was something else there. I just wanted to to ask you. Um, it's escaped me right in death. Um, damn it! What was it? It'll come to you. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps it will. Oh no, that was it. That was it. That was it. Those guys that you were gifting the book to back in 2006, are they listening uh-huh. to these podcasts that you do? Are they reading these Medium articles? Are they, are they like, uh, oh, well, he, you know, when I asked him <laughs> that question in 06, okay, Rob, great, now what? You have the now what? Um, I would say my sphere is pretty polarized like the world is about Bitcoin. You know, I have – Half the guys I went to college with think it's total bullshit. You know, I've got some outstanding bets with different guys. Some people think this, this tech stock will outperform it over the next five years or whatever. And I actually take these bets pretty readily. I don't think there's a better risk-adjusted bet than Bitcoin in the world today at all. Like, not even close. I, like, I'd, I haven't given a handicap yet, but I, I possibly might. Like, that's how confident I am. Um 
so I kind of have half of those guys that are just think it's total bogus bullshit magic internet money. And then I would say the half of the people that are closer to me that actually read my work, and I would consider the more intelligent half of the bunch, uh, they're a little more bought in to, to how big of a deal this really is. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and, um, you know, b- before you leave, let, let's talk about um, the, the company you founded and, and what you do and uh, how people can find you. So what, what is it that, um, you know, you, you – the information that you provide and the service that you provide at, uh, I don't want to mispronounce it, it's Parallax, is that correct? Parallax, yeah. Uh, Parallax, it's an astronomy term. It basically means um, the your point of view changes your perspective. So I got the idea from the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It's a scientific thing that says you can't observe a particle's position and velocity at the same time. The very act of observing, like the photon from your eye that observes something, changes history. So the premise, premise of parallax being that every new perspective is its own reality, um, hearkening to this new perspective on money and state and all the things. So pretty cool name, I thought. I still like it a lot. Um, and we basically today we operate crypto asset hedge fund. Um we're invested mostly in Bitcoin. We actively trade Bitcoin options and derivatives. Um, and then we have a consulting practice looking at some of the other aspects of the sphere. Um, like we, we think digital securities long-term have a real value proposition, but this is that's going to be a very long game. Um, and yeah, just trying to figure out that side of the equation. And then the, you know, the writing and publication is just a way for me to sharpen my own thinking and people seem to enjoy it, so I'm going to keep doing it. Yes, for sure. So if people want to invest in, in Parallax, then is that um, you have this thing in the States called uh, accredited investors? Do you have to be one yeah. of those guys? Or Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That, we're accredited investors only, yeah. And that's a pretty high floor, I believe, isn't it? It's a pretty high floor, yeah. That's more – state problems <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> okay man well i should leave on you know just a quote from your piece uh i think it's brilliant uh bitcoin's monetary policy does not bend for anyone it gives zero fucks and i think, <laughs> I, think <laughs> I think that that rounds up um nicely everything that you're um that you you're trying to get across so um do you have any final thoughts before before we sign off for the listeners uh no i think that our website is parallaxdigital.io it's p-a-r-a-l-l-a-x digital.io um i'm on twitter mostly which my last name is breedlove b-r-e-e-d-l-o-v-e twitter handle is breedlove22 um yeah, I, I I feel very fortunate to have found my life's work, frankly. So um, it feels good. Yeah, that's excellent. So, that is, I mean, not yeah. many people can say that, right? And uh, yeah. good luck with your next piece. We're all we're all sitting here waiting for it. Um, don't rush it. <laughs> don't rush it. Because... <laughs> I, I don't rush it. Don't worry. I take my time. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Robert. It was uh, it was great to meet you, and thanks for sharing. Yeah, Daniel. Likewise. Thanks for having me. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did because that was uh, that was an, another awesome guest to have on the show and to talk about his latest work. If you've not read any of Robert's other blog posts, make sure you go check it out because it's, I mean, everything he's written is just incredible. But this last one, I mean, it was a, it was a mind blower. As soon as it hit Twitter, it just started going crazy. People sharing it around, talking about it, uh, commenting underneath it. You know, he's written an absolute gem there and gone really, really deep, like so deep into the research and understanding of, I mean, this concept of, you know, zero being invented um, and, and how that aligns with, with what's going on right now and with the invention of Bitcoin. Really, you know, this kind of stuff makes you stop and think um, about everything, about um, where we come from, about, uh, you know, humanity at large and, um, you know, what we're living through right now with everything that's going on. But, um, you know, with the the invention of of Bitcoin and where that's going to take us and us being at this turning point in monetary change in monetary history and monetary invention that is going to outlast all of us by centuries, maybe millennia. And we're watching it happen. It's nuts. It really is nuts. And if that doesn't set you alight, I don't know what will. Like, you know, this this hasn't happened for thousands of years. So, you know, it's... um. Yeah, um, you know, it, it leaves me speechless that you know we, we are here witnessing this, and I've said it before. You don't want to be the granddad or the or the grandmother at the head of the table in thirty to forty years' time that has to field the answer to the question. You were around when Bitcoin was invented. Why didn't you buy any back then? Because. <laughs> It's going to make such a different difference for your families. You know, I don't say this lightly. You know, the generations coming behind us. You know, um, I think I tweeted out the other day. I didn't find Bitcoin. Bitcoin found my kids and my grandkids, and and that's the way I view it. Um, that that's the long term, low time preference view that 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 I have on this. That I, I've learned actually to um, embrace since. Uh, since learning about Bitcoin. Anyway, um, I won't ramble on too much longer. Thanks so much to Robert again. Reach out to him on Twitter. He's very active on Twitter. He'll get back to you, no problem. He'll always like or uh, reply to your comment. And uh, share the episode. You know, share this with someone who you think this would resonate with. Uh, You know, this this is a deep one. I'm sure you've got a deep philosophical friend in your contact list that, would be able to get into this and uh, enjoy it for what it is. Um, yeah, take care, guys. Thanks for listening. And uh, shout out on Twitter and put up any um, any guests that you'd like to hear from so I can start reaching out to some more people and um, more interesting guests. And keep the, um, keep the podcast alive. Uh, really enjoyed doing it. So thanks for listening. Bye-bye.